Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 555. Yes, 555 times we've gotten together. Uh, it is Friday, November the 19th, 2010. And today I know why you've tuned in. You know, First and foremost, you want a chance at winning one of those SOE rigor belts. Well, I'm going to give you that chance right up front. That way you won't skip through the rest of the housekeeping. Uh, to play the game, you have to be registered in the contest, and you have to know the rules on how to play the contest. I don't give them on the air anymore. If you're not sure, go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Listener Contest, read the rules of how to play. You can only send one email, code word goes in the subject line, etc. Uh, you send the email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com, like any other email you would send me. Uh, but you need a code word to play today. The way you get the code word, go to originalsoegear.com. If you can't find that, go to the survivalpodcast.com. There will be a link in today's show notes. Go to the homepage. Look at the third paragraph on the homepage, the one that starts out, John's designs are the most innovative and durable on the market today. The code word you need is the last word in that paragraph. The sentence that that word is in begins with, original SOE is the only something. That word at the end is the one you need. You need to go there, find it, and send it in. Don't send me an email with something in the subject line. It won't, it won't help you. All right, now that we got the contest out of the way, you can win one of those awesome Cobra Rigger belts valued at $65. bucks. i am giving away six of those. I guess I should tell you the, uh, the, uh, the, the count uh, that we're giving them away at. We had a huge response last time, well over 200 entries. So give everybody a chance. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give away uh, one of those belts to the first respondent, the 10th respondent, the 40th respondent, the 80th respondent, the 120th respondent, and the 150th respondent. That means any time on Friday, if it's still Friday, you got a chance to win. So that's knocked out. Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors now. Sponsor of the day number one is KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is cool because anybody can build a knife at KnifeKits. I can do it, and I don't really know that much about building knives. I know how to sharpen them, and I know how to do some basic woodworking, but that's kind of it. Uh, but if you are like a master bladesmith and you just need raw materials, you can get what you need from knife kits. So whether you're a beginner like me or an experienced bladesmith, check out knife kits. They have some stuff you will not find anywhere else. You know those guys, I've said this before, I don't know where they got it. They have mammoth tusk material for knife handles. I don't know if like they broke into the Smithsonian or something to get that, but that's just awesome. So check out KnifeKits.com. Next up today, Sawtooth Tactical. Uh, Sawtooth Tactical will give you all the things you need to live that tactical lifestyle. Uh, everything from Magpul Magazines, Maxpedition Bags, and everything you can think of in between. And they always seem to throw in a little extra if you're a member of the Survival Podcast audience. You let them know that in the show notes. And uh, they have another site called Sawtooth Supply. They give you a big discount there if you're an MSB member, so make sure that uh, you check out that second site, check out your MSB discount. Jeff's trying to do that on Sawtooth Tactical as well, but he's got some kind of shopping cart issues or something like that. It's the only reason he hasn't done it yet. Um, but, yeah, definitely let him know you ordered because you found him on our site. I just ordered uh, seven 30-round uh, Magpul PMAGs from him, and uh, they sent me some extra chem lights and stuff like that. They always throw little goodies in. Just a kind of extra, you know, an extra statement. Hey, we appreciate you being a customer, and we appreciate you, uh, you know, supporting the show that we that we, uh, that we sponsor. So check those guys out. Last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, you get over a hundred dollars worth of free eBooks. You get discounts from a ton of vendors. Uh, and you're supporting the show at what comes out to about 20 cents an episode. Hey, it's actually 18 cents an episode. I guess every penny counts. But I'll tell you what, if you're buying anything in the uh, prepper, survivalist, tactical industry, I'm talking anything from seeds uh, for your garden to long-term storage food and anything else in between, ammunition, you name it, there's discounts there. This thing will more than pay for itself. That's how I put it together. That was the plan from day one. With that, even with the contest, we've knocked out the housekeeping quick and efficiently today. Let's go ahead and take that first call. 
Jack, this is Michael from Northwest Arkansas, ML Wilkie on the forum. Uh, we love your show, listen to it every day, think it's great, it's helped me a lot. I had a question for you. What do you think about a short school bus for a bug-out vehicle? I know it's not good on gas, but you could certainly haul a lot of your stuff with you. In fact, uh, maybe even use it as a camper or something like that. Just wondering what you think. I've never heard anybody mention it. Thanks a lot, Jack. Thanks for what you do. Bye. Well, it's kind of a cool idea. I've really never specifically thought about, you know, looking for a short bus. Um, I've been told sometimes maybe I need to get on the short bus, but uh, I think it actually has some advantages over a full-size one because it's easier to get into places, easier to maneuver, what have you. Uh, it obviously has less carrying capacity, less space. Uh, but you could make a cool little camper out of one of those. There's actually a website that you could spend a lot of time just kind of browsing on and, and wasting time with called schoolie.net. It's, it's, uh, S-K-O-O-L-I-E dot N-E-T. So schoolie.net. The School Bus Conversion Network. And they have everything from really redneck conversions to like, you know, beautiful things that if you, if you didn't build it yourself, you'd probably end up spending Tens of thousands or even more. I mean, there's, I've seen some on there that, you know, if you look at that and you go, well, if I wanted an RV that had all of that in it, it'd be a hundred grand. Um, I'm not saying the thing's worth a hundred grand at that point because it's still a school bus, right? But, uh, I've seen some pretty amazing things done on there. Again, from redneck to high tech. Um, overall, would it make a good, uh, bug out vehicle? I, I can't see why it wouldn't as long as it's in good, you know, uh, mechanical repair. Uh, there's probably a lot of them out there for sale right now. I'm starting to see more and more of these like new school buses that are just beautiful, which means uh, that all of those old school buses are probably being dumped in the market somewhere. So is it my first, is it what I would do as a first choice? I'd prefer a big diesel pickup in an RV, but um, I can see some real advantages there. And you definitely have some real towing capacity. Remember, those things are meant to carry a lot of weight because they're meant to carry students completely filling them up. And uh, with that being the case, if you don't load them down with a lot of weight, they've got enough power, they can do some good pulling too. So the short bus with a trailer even extends what you could do with it more. Um, I like the idea for a low-cost kind of self-funded you know, project thing with a lot of uh, sweat equity going into the final project of conversion of school buses. I think it's a it's a really cool idea. I've even seen people that live in one. I don't want to live in a school bus, but you know it can be done. And there's a lot of things in the shit at the fan that we might have to do that we don't want to do. So definitely think it's cool. Definitely uh, think people should check out schoolie.net again. Uh, really cool site. You won't believe what some people have done with old school buses. It's absolutely phenomenal. So no worries there, man, if that's what you want to do. And if you do, make sure you post pictures of your progress on the forum. I'd love to see that. Let's take another question. Hi, Jack. This is Dale from Pennsylvania. Um, I would like your suggestions on uh, things, food for my bug-out bag um, that I can make myself. I, you know, I know a lot of people use MREs and freeze-dried Mountain House and stuff like that, but I'm looking for things that I can produce myself. Now, some of the things that I've come up with so far are uh, things like uh, biltong or jerky, uh, dried fruits, uh, nuts. Uh, my girlfriend suggested... Um, coconut oil to supply um, the fats in your diet. But so I'm looking for something you know that could keep uh, basically indefinitely in moderate temperatures at least without refrigeration uh, that I could keep in my bug out bag. Things I could use to provide a fairly well balanced diet for three days or so. If you could give your suggestions on that, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. Now that's a great question, and dang it, that's something I should do a. A whole show on put together some recipes and stuff like that, and talk about you know building building it up for stores, not just for your bug out bag, but for your home as well, for quick, easy to cook things, uh, using your preps and, and whatnot. I mean, let's start off with an an analysis of the the typical thing that people put into a bug out bag. Uh, that they buy commercially, like let's say the Mountain House freeze dried food packets. Now, if you've never eaten them, you may not realize this, but with all of the hoopla about, you know, chicken teriyaki this and, you know, so-and-so chili that, whatever. When you open them up, they all seem to be based on one of two things, pasta or rice. And that's because it's inexpensive, 
easy to put through the freeze-dried process and make cook very, fairly quickly, uh, and a good source of carbohydrate and, and calories so that we can add in some other things like some fake texture, textured vegetable soy protein stuff that they put in there rather than real meat. Uh, in most of them. Some of them they actually use real meat, but some of the stuff I've been like, you buy it quick, you're going to try it, you eat it, and you go, that doesn't taste like chicken. That tastes like chicken-flavored something. And you look on the ingredient, oh, this one has TVP in it. So, But what we learn from that is that a great basis is rice and pasta. So with that as your base, um, as long as you have you know some method of cooking and carry water or you know things to filter water with with your bug-out bag, you should be able to do the same thing. What I've learned with pasta, the best pasta to carry with you in like a vacuum-sealed bag so that it doesn't get crushed up and destroyed is either elbow macaroni or mini penne. Both of those, when they're vacuum-sealed and they're nicely tightly packed together, they seem to not get crushed because they're in the bag tightly packed and you don't end up with like noodle dust. With rice, what you want to use, you want to use white rice because it's going to store better for you, and you want to use minute rice. So with those two bases, now we can start to make all kinds of stuff. As long as we have a vacuum sealer, we don't really need a vacuum sealer, but it's a good idea. Good, strong vacuum seal bags are going to make it more secure. But we could take two Ziploc bags, right? And we could put it in one and push the mustard the air out as we can, throw an O2 absorber in there, zip it up, put that inside another bag, you know, and roll that up and zip that up. And we could do it that way. And then you know what? We've got the Ziploc bags for use after we cook. But if we use a um, vacuum seal bag, I was just thinking about this today. Some things you might even be able to put together that don't need to be cooked They could just be have hot water dumped into them the way that you do with Mountain House. And with a clip and a little rigged up stand, you could basically cook, for lack of a better term, inside your, your vacuum seal bags. I don't know how I feel about doing that with something a little less durable like a Ziploc bag. But just a thought there. Some things you could do. Well, if you're carrying biltong and jerky, let's say we put together some rice, a little bit of beef bouillon, some dehydrated vegetables, And make sure you put your bouillon into a second bag inside the first bag. Keep it separate from everything else. It needs to stay really dry and not come into contact with things. But then we have that little pack set up. Now we can either chop them some biltong or jerky and include it in there or keep it separate. When we're going to cook it, we pull that out, put that up on our little, you know, your alcohol stove or your, your butane stove or whatever you're, you're using for that, uh, your little hobo stove, whatever it is you carry. Start cooking that up, chop up some biltong or jerky, drop that in there. Now you've got beef, you got beef, uh, beef and rice with some bouillon for flavoring and see now some, some vegetables. And actually I think you can do a lot better than Mountain House for quality of flavor and quality of product. Where you can't beat them is duration, right? You, you throw some Mountain House envelopes in there, they got five year shelf life and trust me folks, they last longer than that. They really do. Because freeze drying, which is what they do, is the most expensive and best way to preserve food. But if you make tasty stuff you don't mind eating, you know, you just rotate it out every year or two. And you're not going to have any problem getting a year or two of storage, even with Ziploc bags. Uh, but I do recommend you invest in a vac sealer for, for doing this. Let's see, what are some other things you could come up with? Other than the, the stuff you mentioned was great. Now, you got to realize something about dehydration companies, like the, the Excalibur company makes a great dehydrator, but they're going to cover their ass and say basically don't dehydrate meat. There's all kinds of meat you can dehydrate, and there's all kinds of things you can do with meat dehydration to add protein. It doesn't have the storage life of something like that. And this is what this is what these companies that say don't do it are afraid of. They're afraid you're going to dehydrate something, and you're going to stick it in a jar with no real, you know, no oxygen absorbers or anything. So let it sit in a light. Let it sit there for four years and think you can go off and eat it, and by that time it's gone bad and maybe makes you sick. But, like, you can dehydrate ground beef. You want to go with very lean beef. And uh, you want to you want to cook it before you dehydrate beef. And to every pound of beef, you want to add uh, about a half a cup of breadcrumbs. And I learned this from a site called uh, the Backpack BackpackingChef.com. I'll put a link in today's show notes. But if you do that, what happens? Here's the thing: you can dehydrate the ground beef without the breadcrumbs. It doesn't take up the moisture very well. And because it doesn't take up the moisture very well, you end up with these little hard pitted meat balls that suck, 
right? They're like these like meat nuts or something, and it's not good. Uh, <laughs> some of you that are highly carnivorous are meat nuts. That's not sounds like not like that. No, this this is not good. But if you add the breadcrumbs, and I've tried this, I need to do a YouTube video on it. Uh, you get a very you know good rehydrated product. Now you can tell there's there's breadcrumbs in there, kind of like when you make meatballs and you add some breadcrumbs to them. They have a little bit of a different texture, but it's real meat. So that's another thing you can experiment with. This guy dehydrates shrimp. He dehydrates tuna. Now, these don't last long-term for a bug-out bag, but they last for a few weeks. Uh, so I'm going to actually try to find this guy, get him on the show for an interview, folks. Uh, again, I'll give you a link to his uh, site today, backpackingchef.com. This guy even dehydrates lunch meat and uh, seems to do well with all this. He's got all kinds of recipes out there. So hopefully that gives you some ideas of what you can do. But, I mean, here's the reality. Anything that's going to store... You can put into a recipe you, you can use to do this. So um, you can dehydrate your own vegetables. Uh, you can also get dehydrated vegetables from a great company called Harmony House, which is, uh, again, a great company to do business with. They have an amazing selection of dehydrated vegetables and dehydrated beans. And the beans are a great one because um, I'm not big on trying to de dehydrate a canned or a cooked bean. It can be done, but it's kind of a pain in the butt. Um, and then dry beans don't really work well for bug out bag because they require so long to cook. You can do lentils if you want, but that's about it. But if nothing else, one thing you want to check out with uh, Harmony House are their dehydrated beans. They have every kind of bean you can think of. And because they're dehydrated, they're actually cooked when they're before they're dehydrated. And that means that they can basically, you don't even have to really cook them. If you add boiling hot water to them and let them seep, uh, you get a fully cooked product. So now we can start to take something like Let's We go to Harmony House, we buy a great big gallon jug of dehydrated red beans. And we use those in our cooking, and we use those for our making our little you know ration bags and stuff. So we take some minute rice and some red beans, right? Okay, now maybe we take uh, you know some textured vegetable ham, because that's the best we can do in this scenario, uh, for long term, because I'm not going to go with dehydrated ham for long term. But we use some ham, ham bits. Uh, you can also get those from Harmony House. We get some uh, some bullion, ham-flavored bullion, and uh, we put that together. Now we've got, you know, that's red beans and rice with ham. That's that's not bad. We could also do something like go to one of our local sporting goods stores where they sell, you know, like where they sell beef jerky and all that. There's a company called Country Boy that makes these dried sausages. Now that mixed in there would be probably good. I'd leave that in its original packaging. The key is to be creative with stuff like this. Again, I'm going to put together a show like this. This has actually got me really excited. Thank you for that question. There's some ideas today. Look for a show sometime, probably the first week, second week of December, uh, on all how to build your own uh, rations and uh, long-term storage foods and, and quick-cook foods, too. Things that like maybe you wouldn't even put in the bug-out bag, but you could have all set up ready to go and just drop it into a slow cooker or a pot of boiling water or what have you. Again, this has got me jazzed, man. Thanks for that. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Stephen Tracy in Kentucky from the Forum. I uh, love the show. One of the things we were talking about, especially as we get closer to the winter, was prepping for clothing. And one of the things that Tracy had asked was, in a survival situation or should hit the fan, how would we go about clothing? Is there a convenient way to make clothing without having to have large operations? I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Thanks for the show. Well, I mean, cut and dry to the point, if you can sew and follow a pattern, you can make clothes. It's not that hard. It really isn't. There's you know plenty of child slave laborers all over the world making T-shirts right now. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's a reality. If they can do it, we can do it too. Um, that's on a large scale. But in the individual, it's not on a large scale. It's a sewing machine and some material. The big problem with making clothing during a shit at the fan is going to be material. Where do you get it? Where do you find it when all of these cheap, you know, supplies, uh, you know, disappear? So there's a couple different ways we can handle this. One is if you're worried about it for the future and having some clothing, we can go out and buy all this cheap clothing that's available today, pack up a couple boxes of it in various sizes, bigger and smaller than we are, because uh, we might grow before the shit hits the fan, and we might sh we're damn well going to shrink after it. Um, and maybe clothing would be a good barter tool. And as you find things in thrift shops and stuff like that, you can stack up some clothing. Now, I'm not big on that because whenever I have extra clothing, I donate it to charity because I know there's somebody that needs it now. 
But it's maybe not a bad idea to have some extra stuff around like that and maybe put it away. I've never really thought about that because that has always been, you know, as soon as I look at something and go, I'm not going to wear that anymore, um, I give it away. Goodwill or, or, or the Arlington Shelter up here or someplace like that because if I can, you know, not to get biblical with you, but the coat that you don't wear belongs on your neighbor. I mean, I don't remember the exact uh, proverb or, or whatever it was. I know it was one of the things that, that Jesus said, that basically if you have an unused garment, it belongs given away charitably. Um, and I believe that. I, I really do. I, I, so I'm not big on hoarding clothing. On making it, you know, maybe it's a good idea to stockpile some material If we go back to you know colonial and, and, and very short after post-colonial days, early United States, as soon as people went far enough west, it wasn't really long before you started seeing people dressed pretty much in buckskins and animal skins, and that's what all the Native Americans were dressed in because you know the whole concept of, of making a fabric. Uh, in, in a lot of ways was far to me. You went down into South America, you had people uh, creating uh, uh, wool down there from their livestock, but there wasn't a lot of livestock here. So if we want to be able to make cloth and material, we either need to be growing something like cotton, uh, which has its limitations, or raising livestock like llamas or sheep or something like that. And uh, I think what you'll see is if we ever have a major, the big giant shit hit the fan, the people that can produce garments are going to have a trade. That's going to be one of the, knowing how to sew, knowing how to weave, knowing how to, 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 to get raw materials into fabrics, uh, that's going to be a huge skill, and it's something we don't do a lot of in the United States anymore. Um, other than at the factory level, we don't, that, that skill set's been lost, so it's a good one to pick up. I don't have a great answer for you on this one. Anybody that's ever thought about this, has some ideas, chime in today with, uh, today's show notes. I sometimes I think questions I don't have a great answer for just because, man, I can't know everything. I promise you I don't. Um, but those are my thoughts on that. And, uh, I think one of the great skills we can learn though is basic clothing manufacture from, from hides, from, from, uh, you know, buckskin and things like that. Because that is something we may be able to find and, and make available to ourselves in the really, you know, the low probability, high impact event. Uh, but the biggest thing I would say is make sure you have enough clothing, uh, in your home and make sure you're prepared to deal with temperatures that you don't normally deal with. Either be able to deal with it getting really hot, which isn't, isn't the hard one, but dealing with it getting very cold. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. Um, my name is Joshua Farr, and uh, I'm from northern Ohio, and I have a couple questions for you. First off, I love the show, and I've listened since probably episode 70-ish or maybe 100, but anyway, um, my wife and I are um, curious of what, what type of things to invest in. Um, we have maybe about the 25% mark of the silver and gold, and... Uh, I'm not really confident in the markets, and I don't really feel comfortable, not that I wouldn't feel comfortable in investing in some sort of a, a stock or something like that, but I just haven't found one I feel comfortable in. So I guess that sums up my first question. What are some good ideas? I've got a, a 401k that I need to roll over from the old company I used to work for. So the second question is, um, how do you feel about buying a house right now? We have... Um, enough probably for 15 to 20% down payment and so we're uncertain as to what the market's going to do I know that you don't have a you know, magic insight into what the future holds but um, just curious your thoughts so anyway love your show hope this uh, makes it on the air so I'll talk to you later bye well let's start out with the general investing question um I don't give you stock picks and things like that. Um, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't want to be. Um, I can only tell you my general feelings on things right now. I think the market overall has a pretty good run in it left before we go into the second flop. Uh, I don't know how long that's going to last. I don't know how far that's going to go. And I'd be very careful with any money that you're planning for retirement or short-term use right now. I'd be very, very careful with my money. Um, I would get that money rolled into your IRA. Make sure it's an IRA with lots of options, a self-directed IRA where you can do things like buy individual stocks or not. Uh, I don't like 401ks any more than you have to have them. While you're at an employer and it works for you, fine, but as soon as you leave that employer, get it the heck out of there. Take control of that money. Give yourself more options with it. 
I would have at least half of my funding right now in cash. I mean, everybody's scared to keep cash. I get cash, like you know, get a one percent interest or something like that. Um, it's better than losing eighty percent, right? Getting zero is better than losing fifty percent. And I don't know when that's coming, but I'm telling you right now, um, sooner or later it is. So I would put some of my money into into to cash or cash equivalent investments. Um, I would look at secure bonds, and I would keep an eye even on that market right now. Uh, you can buy stocks. You can buy um, good growth-based, dividend-based mutual funds. If you're going to invest in stocks or funds right now, the place to put your money is funds or individual stocks that have a strong track record of paying dividends and companies that have stayed profitable through this recession. And you're going to see that those companies are not very volatile. If you look at a perfect example of the, the profile you're looking for, I won't invest in this company because I don't like them, but Walmart. Okay, Walmart is the perfect profile for a company to invest in. And I'm not saying I don't want to invest in the fund that has Walmart in it, because any good growth fund right now that's based on dividend producers is going to have Walmart in it. So, But I won't go buy their individual stock, just out of spite. And it's probably a dumb thing to do, because it's probably a good stock to own right now. Um, that's why I can recommend it, because I don't buy it myself, and I'm telling you not to, but it's still a good profile. That's why I picked it as an example. But, you know, that stock, if you look at the crash, it came down a little bit, but not much. You look at the resurgence, it went back up a little bit, but not much. It's pretty much a straight line. But what you see is every quarter that dividend gets paid. Uh, there's a lot of good ways to do dividend capture out there right now. There's a lot of good companies that are staying solid with their dividends. Um, so if you're going to put anything at risk, put it at risk into a place with a dividend return. Because that at least buffers something. And, and you know, look for a fund or a stock that does dividend reinvestment. So when they pay that dividend, it goes right back into the stock. And that multiplies the return of your investment over time. Uh, but be prepared in any scenario to pull the trigger and get it the hell out of there quickly. If we start to see things that really say this market's going to slide, especially in an IRA, there's no tax consequences. So dump the damn thing. Get rid of it. And be prepared to, to go somewhere else with your money. But take control. Don't leave stuff on autopilot. I'm buying a house. I can give you a little bit more advice on that because it's a little bit more of a general question. Um, here's how I feel about the housing market right now. I don't know what's going to happen in the next two to three years. I'm telling you, if I think if you buy a house now, ten years from now, either the shit has completely hit the fan and it doesn't matter. You know, it just doesn't at that point. Um, or we've kind of gone through what I think we're going to go through and we're coming out the other side of it and you've got a solid investment. But if you're going to, if you're going to want to buy a house right now, you say, well, I'm going to want to move up in house and find a better place in the next two to three years. Don't buy a house right now. Rent. Find the most affordable rent you can get and rent and save like crazy and buy that house that you're going to want three years from now, three years from now. If you're looking to buy a house that you're going to stay in, that you're going to live in, your dream home, that's a great time to buy. Can I tell you that the price of value of the house won't come down at all? No. But if you buy smart, you have a good down payment, you can afford the house, you're not putting yourself out, you have enough money in reserve that if you lost a job, you could cover it for at least six months, that type of thing going on, you know what? You're going to be okay. And it doesn't matter if the value of your house falls if you don't want to move. You know, I mean, my house in Arkansas could be end up being worth forty thousand dollars because the market falls apart. Uh, I don't care if it's pay, you know, if I it can easily pay for it, or if I've already paid it off. I don't care. Why would I? Until the day I want to sell it, it doesn't matter. But the short term, if you're a short time horizon right now, don't buy a house. Just don't do it. Now, it could work because if we get the false recovery bubble that I've been talking about, you'll see housing prices start to climb. I think we're actually going to see a little mini real estate boom come back. It's going to be held in check, which is good, by the way, because credit standards are so much higher right now. But all of these people that, that, that took this, I'm going to move out of the big house and rent an apartment or rent a house for a while, if they get their lives back together, what is the first goal they're going to have? You get back into a house I own. They'll probably buy smarter and smaller, but when all of those renters start looking for places to own again, that's going to start pulling it. And then we're already seeing some of that inventory get gobbled up. It's been gobbled up a lot by the landlords right now because it's a great time to be a landlord. Because so many people have lost houses, they have to turn around and rent. So it's easy to get tenants right now. 
Uh, in fact, it's pretty competitive in some markets to rent a place, and it's easy to find something to buy, crazy as that is. So, uh, by the way, Donald Trump predicted that. Donald Trump said uh, in, in about 2006, 2007, 2008, he was saying, look, this is a great time to be an investor, to buying real estate to rent. And that's what it was, that was his big recommendation right now, not because he saw the crash coming. And he was saying, look, this is going to happen, but it's going to create a tremendous opportunity for the people that want to put tenants in place. You have to buy really smart, uh, and you have to put good, solid tenants in, but if you do that, this is going to be a great opportunity. He was right about that. That's why, even though I think he's a blowhard, he's arrogant, I like his advice because it's usually pretty good. So on the house, it all comes down to your time horizon. You're going to be there for 10 years or more. I feel comfortable with a buy recommendation. If you have a short time horizon, stay a tenant somewhere, find the most affordable thing you can, and be careful and save as much money as you can to find what you really want and move into that place. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. Uh, uh, it's a Survivor on the forums. Um, I, I listened to your comments about uh, fluoride and um when I when I hear some of that stuff and Nazi scientists and various things, it, it kind of makes me think uh, conspiracy. And uh, in, in I kind of does seem odd to have to drink water to clean your teeth. But uh, um, the only the thing that, that I'm not the other, the, another piece of the puzzle which puzzles me and uh, doesn't really get mentioned according to my research is that um, tea uh, leaves are high in fluoride and. Um, Tea is like the number one drink of the world, and um, so and um, I, I guess if, if tea is high in fluoride, um, I don't know where does the tea get the fluoride? Does it get it out of the ground, or does it create the fluoride? I would I would guess it gets it out of the ground. I don't know. So I'm not sure how common fluoride is, and in, in, uh, if a lot of people are getting a lot of fluoride from drinking the tea and so on, and um, I'm just puzzled about that aspect, and. Uh, um, so I, I don't really know what to think. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't know as far as conspiracy or whatever. But uh, <clears throat> also, uh, I, I like to bring like a six-gallon water jug with me uh, up to Maine, and then tap water and then filter it. But uh, <clears throat> there aren't really any water filters that filter fluoride, except for uh, you know the, some of the Berkeys aren't really that portable. Uh, I have a travel Berkey. The, the Go Berkey doesn't do fluoride. The filter won't fit in it, and uh, I don't know if this Lifesaver 4000 or whatever, but most most regular little filters don't do that. But anyways, so uh, that's kind of what I wonder about anyways. So um, thanks. All right, man, thanks for calling in. Let's start out with the question on the filtration. Um, I don't uh, offhand know of other filters that will do this, but there are other filters out there that will remove uh, fluoride for you. I like the Berkey because... You can add the fluoride and arsenic filters, and um, it's still, to me, the most economical way long-term to uh, make sure you have good, safe, filtered drinking water. Um, it is not good for travel. Uh, I completely agree with you on that. But if you had a larger system in your home and you have the six-gallon can, why not filter the water in your home? And when you go upstate like you do, um, take filtered water instead of taking unfiltered water and, and try to filter it up there. I mean, that would be my my best suggestion. Other than if you have like kind of a bug out location you're looking for a filter in, well, then leave it up there and you can use a larger system up there. I mean, it's, it's, it's six of one, half dozen of the other there. Um, but things like uh, the Lifesaver filters from uh, ready-made resources, no, they will not remove fluoride. Most filter systems out there, unless they're specific to fluoride, don't remove fluoride because it's much harder to get out of the water uh, than something like a bacteria or virus. Uh, on the tea and on fluoride in general, um, let's look at some things that are, you know, factual about that. First, how does the fluoride get in the tea? Um, is tea like a natural fluoride producer? No, it's an accumulator of fluoride. Understand, fluoride is a natural substance. I've said this before. It's, it, it doesn't mean it's safe and it's okay. You know, there's plenty of natural substances that, that aren't safe and okay. There's a natural substance that grows in most backyards called the destroying angel mushroom. And if you eat that, it'll kill you dead. Uh, it'll kill you dead quick. That's why they call it destroying angel. So, but it is natural. And our bodies can tolerate some level of it. And the tea plant 
is very good at accumulating it out of there's there's some fluoride in in some water supplies naturally occurring fluoride there's some fluoride in the mineral content of some soils so your tea is going to vary a great deal with fluoride based on you know where it's uh, it's grown and some hard numbers to uh, to make this make sense is that let's look at water first of all water is supposed to have Uh, one part per million. That the, that's what they try to target for us to, uh, to, to make us have healthy teeth, they say, by dripping this crap into our water supply. Some tea can have more fluoride than fluorinated water. Uh, and tea can have anywhere from, like, let's say 1.5 to 3.9 parts per million. That's a lot more. You know, one and a half to, uh, or, uh, 50% to, to three times to four times more than our fluorinated water. But, It's going to vary dependent upon where the tea was grown. Because if there's more fluoride in the, the soil in that area naturally, it's going to have more. So if you're doing something like growing your own tea plant in like a greenhouse or something like that in, you know, compost, well, then you're going to probably have just about none. Because there's not much for it to accumulate. So it's not that tea naturally has fluoride. Uh, the other thing is, let's say we're just drinking teas. Um, well... That's fine, because when we have a cup of tea here or a cup of tea there, it's not the same as having that fluoride in every stinking thing we drink and eat. That's the other problem I have with the public fluoridation of water. Um, people don't even think about this. You cook pasta. Well, a lot of that water is absorbed into the noodles. Even though you dump the water out, if it's not filtered water, you're, there's fluoride in your pasta. You make tea, it already has fluoride in it, now it has more fluoride. And you make coffee, it has a little, lot less. Coffee's generally about a half a part per million that it accumulates, depending on its soil type. But we make coffee, there's a little bit there, but now there's more. You know, I cook chicken soup. If I don't filter, there's fluoride in the chicken soup. I, you know, I go get, get a glass of water, there's fluoride. And so no matter what I do, I'm taking in more. So to me, it's always about mitigation. You can't get away from it. You know, there's there's actually a little bit of cyanide in most grapes. It's just not enough to hurt you. So there's toxins everywhere. Plenty of things that we eat that are completely natural have some level of toxin, and our body can deal with it. Now, it doesn't mean that natural fluoride is safe and unnatural fluoride isn't safe. It's the same molecule. It's all it's all toxic. And if you drank enough pee that had a high fluoride accumulation. You could cause as much damage to yourself as drinking water that has fluoride dripped into it. My big issue with the fluoride, and I don't think it's conspiracy. I don't think they're trying to kill us. I think these people actually believe that what they're doing is helpful. I think the concept, well, if fluoride in your teeth is good, then putting some in the water is okay, and as long as it's not enough to be toxic, then there's no problem. I think they actually believe this. It doesn't take away from the fact that the Nazis used it. They used it in higher volumes than our governments. Our government's not trying to dumb you down with fluoride in your water. They're really not. If you're, they, see, that's the whole, like, I like Alex Jones, and then, woo, we're off. And, it's, it's a simple fact that, that, you know, this stuff just doesn't belong added to our water. You got people doing this, I believe, with the right intentions and the wrong results. And I don't think it actually works, and I think it's so ingrained in the system now And I think there's also a reality, once we do something, it's hard to admit you were wrong. Especially if you're the government, because then people might start coming after you and asking for things like money. You know, if they ever actually admit to this, then every local municipality that's done it is looking at Lawsuit City. So the best course of action to get this stuff out of your water is go to your local water authority and say you don't want it there. And get as many of your neighbors to do the same thing as you can because it's completely voluntary. And this is why I don't think it's a conspiracy. There's no law that says they have to do it. There's no mandate and there's places they don't do it and nobody gets upset when they don't do it. So there you go. Best answer I can give you on that question. Good one, Survivor. Thanks for asking it. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. Phil from Tucson. Brilliant shows on the economy, man. Actually, I've just finished listening to episode one, and I'm going to listen to episode two tomorrow. So i got a quick question for you. Do you think that there's a correlation between the 1913 fundamental changes you talked about, that being the elections, the creation of the Federal Reserve, and the uh, creation of the income tax, do you think there's a direct correlation between that and the Great Depression that shortly followed that? Was it kind of like a 
overwhelming booster shot to the system that kind of brought it to its knees temporarily. Uh, your thoughts on that? Thanks, buddy. Bye. You know, I'm, I'm a big guy on whooping on the Fed. I whoop on the Fed all the time and every chance I get. And I do lay some of the blame for the Depression at the feet of the Fed. But let's be honest. There's a lot of stuff that w went on with the Great Depression that wasn't directly monetarily related. The, the Fed did not cause the Dust Bowl. So the agricultural losses and, and, the, and, the, and the losses out on the plains from the Dust Bowl weren't caused by the Fed. They were caused by you know, farming practices that were kind of out of line. And, and really people, I don't think people really understood what they were doing. I don't think those people out there would have destroyed all that topsoil if they knew that's what they were doing. But it's what happened. It certainly was an aggravating circumstance to the Depression. It certainly made the Depression worse. It certainly made food more scarce. And it certainly cost those people uh, extensively financially. So we can't blame the entire Depression on the Fed. But here's their role in it. One of the biggest things that caused the Depression was a new type of credit that no one had ever heard of uh, before the 20s came along, and it was backed by all this new, easily created money from the Fed. Now remember, we still had a gold standard, but there was it, this is why I say gold standard alone can't fix a problem, because there were still ways to create money through lending with a gold standard. And all of this new money and the Fed controlling interest rates and stuff led to this thing called margin. And this is a big part of what drove the stock market crash. Um, the stocks were being bought with money people didn't have. They were being bought on credit. And everybody was making money, and the market was booming, and it was this new thing. And all of a sudden, when the market crashed, all those loans, all that margin came due. And let's say I borrowed $50,000 to buy um, $60,000 worth of stock. And now the stock is totally worth... You know, let's say 20. Well, I owe 50 and I have $20,000, my own 10, that whatever losses it took and, and 10 left from, you know, the, 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 the margin that I borrowed. However you want to work out that math. But the key is I can sell my stock and I got to cover my, my, my bet. Now the thing is, I'm not going to get that upside down with margin. The, the people that loan me the money won't let me. As soon as I crack through the threshold and now I owe more than I have in the stock, uh, they're going to make me sell it. I'm going to have to sell it. I'm going to put in a sell order as quick as I can. And what happens is as I sell that stock, I have to sell it for under its market value. i got to get money for it now. So I have as little coming out of my pocket as possible. Now, what does that do? Well, that brings the value of that stock down. So everybody else that bought it on margin starts to do the same thing. And people lower and lower in the position start getting affected. And it starts to cascade down. Everybody starts dumping and the price just falls. And that's a huge part. It's not the only thing that caused the stock market crash in 1929, but it's a huge part of what caused it. I don't think people also understand that we went through a little mini depression um, right after the Fed took over in the early 20s. The thing that brought us out of that was prohibition. It's as insane as this sounds, when they made alcohol illegal, the alcohol business boomed. And all of a sudden, people were making t anybody that could make up a little bit of booze was making some money off of it, and a lot of that money got turned around. And then people like Al Capone came along and turned it into a legitimate, illegitimate business and started to build basically what you have to call a crime syndicate, but a company around the concept, and that produced a lot of other money. And that started to and that, a lot of that money to get laundered eventually ended up where in the stock market using leverage margin. So all of these things played together, but. The Fed, to me, is not so much they create crises on purpose, but their entire methodology is flawed. The concept that you can control a market by flooding money into a market or pulling money out or controlling an interest rate just flies in the face of actual reason. Anybody that's you know studied Austrian economics sees the flaw in that. Though the banksters, as uh, Gerald Salenti calls them, that make up the Fed, that are behind the scenes... The actual banks that represent the membership, um, they make tons of money on these disasters. And when they lose, we end up bailing them out. Now, that wasn't, people in 1930s, if the government would have turned around and handed a billion dollars to a bank during the Depression, they would have gotten away with it. Right? Let alone multiple, you know, a 700 billion, 800 billion dollar bailout like we had here. If they would have done $1 billion, the people of the United States at the time would have went to Washington 
and pulled those people out of the Capitol building, tarred and feathered them and hung them in the streets. That's the difference of America from 1930 to today. A lot of socialism went on under FDR. Uh, a lot of corruption that brought the Fed in. But there was a limit to what those people would tolerate. That was your grandparents and your great-grandparents. They would have tolerated this crap. Today, we get angry and we rumble and we grouse and moan and all, but we don't do what they would have done. Um, so it wasn't as bad, but the Depression was definitely lengthened by the Federal Reserve. It, we could have come out of it earlier. It gave us a great excuse for war. And if you want to look at where the, the bankers made their money it, during that time, it was World War II. And they funded both sides. If you fund both sides in a fight, whoever wins, wins, and you win regardless. Because you're making money while you're, you're funding them, you're making money while you're selling to them, and in the end, the winner gets so much that it offsets any losses you had by backing the losers. And if we look, there is so much corruption in the oil industry, the banking industry, that were on both sides of World War II. It's unbelievable what some U.S. companies were doing, and that's all tied in together. I know that sounds conspiratorial, but it's all fact. You can look it up. Go look up, you know, George Bush's father. George Bush Sr.'s father. So, George Bush the first, right? Not the second or the third, not W or HW, but the original old man. And see what he did. Find out what he did and what he was part of selling to the Nazis in World War II. I won't even tell you what it is. Go do your own research. Find that out. Uh, you'll be shocked. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Rendell from Western Nebraska. I had uh, planted some buckwheat this spring on your recommendations on how easy it was to harvest. It uh, planted about half a pound, got about six and a half pounds out of it. I was curious on how to use it. Uh, they say that the hulls ain't particularly edible. Uh, should this be cracked through a barley mill or something to remove the hulls or just grind it and run with it? <clears throat> I would uh, recommend anyone that has bees, uh, buckwheat is flowered all season. So thanks. Love the show. Bye. It's a good question, and to get the nice, pretty buckwheat flour that you make something like buckwheat pancakes out of, really hard to do at home. There's, there is a way you can get some of that, and that's basically by flailing it. One of the things you can do is kind of put it into like a sack, like an old pillowcase will work well, and just basically beat it with a flail, and that'll crack the holes, and uh, you can winnow that out. Now, there's going to be a lot of uh, the buckwheat kernel itself still left in your holes, but you can get some that way, and that's probably the easiest way for the home grower to get some of that nice fluffy uh, buckwheat flour, buckwheat powder. Um, if you want lots of that, the easiest thing to do is buy whole buckwheat that's already been holed for you. Uh, the way to use it in your cooking, though, basically the best place to use it is in your breads. And what you do is you take basically a handful of buckwheat, holes and all, maybe two handfuls in your batch of bread, throw that into a blender and blend the heck out of it, holes and all. And then mix that in there as a source of protein and fiber uh, and, and flavor, and it's good that way. If you try to make a whole loaf of bread with buckwheat flour like that, um, it's going to not be very tasty. The holes are, are too coarse and uh, have too much of, a, of kind of an off flavor. But a handful like that gives it a really nutty kind of cool taste, and that's a good thing to add a handful to your batch of beer bread, your standard bread. Uh, it's even pretty good if you add a couple a handful of that to maybe a batch or two of your Irish soda bread, if you make Irish soda bread. So that's the best way for me as far as I use buckwheat. I pretty much grow it as a green manure crop and a pollinator attractor because, the like you said, the flowers are great, and then the grain is kind of a bonus. And I can save the grain and grow more buckwheat. I can use the buckwheat that way. Um, there are some grinders that claim that they'll help you hold buckwheat. It doesn't work real well. Most of the machines that do a good job of it are kind of commercial grade. I think sooner or later, there's a lot of people that are getting into growing their own grains at home. We will see kind of a home-sized machine for buckwheat hauling, but right now that doesn't exist. But a good flail, uh, you can get some... Uh, some good amount of buckwheat out there, just basically crushing it uh, and then winnowing it. But again, you probably still want to take those holes and grind them up. There's going to be a lot of uh, uh, buckwheat material still inside them. Best you can do with that, 
Um, it is easy to harvest, but getting it to a flower state, a little bit more difficult. But uh, those are some great ways you can do that. Let's go ahead and take another question. Hey, Jack. I just wanted to ask a quick question about gold. Let's listen to uh, episode 540 today. And uh, gold rises with inflation, but what we actually see going on in the United States is deflation um, at this particular time, and the only thing really saving most things is subsidies. But uh, my question is, why is gold spiking up so high if we're actually dealing with deflation? I know that there's, you know, the, uh, the doubt of the dollar, and that's probably the vast majority of it, but is that... Uh, the main reason why you think gold is going to come back down uh, because we're actually seeing deflation right now and not inflation. That's my question. Thanks, bud. Have a good one. Well, isn't that interesting? Uh, yeah, well, here's first of all why. Number one, because we are having inflation and they're lying about it. I mean, that's the big reason. Uh, if you look at, you go and you go to the grocery store today, or you went to the grocery store exactly one year ago, you're going to pay more. So there's inflation. Gasoline is up from a year ago. If you look at every commodity across the board, it's up. And up, some of them are way, like, we're only paying a little bit of the increase. And right now, the middlemen in the, in the supply chain are the ones taking the hit. But sooner or later, that's going to break down and it's going to spill over to us. So that's one thing. There is inflation now. Number two, people are buying the gold on the speculation of inflation, driving up the price. So in other words, when you buy something, a stock, a bond, gold, anything, you're buying partly its value today, and you're also buying your expected appreciation tomorrow, and you're hoping that there's more in there than you paid for. So you're buying a future value, and people are seeing long-term inflation being a bigger problem with a bigger run-up. So that you, you kind of have that as well in the mix. So what we have... In, in, in comparison to what we've had in the past, is low inflation. And people not having confidence that it's going to stay that way, so they're running to gold. You're also looking at a point where people just don't have, people with big money don't have a lot of confidence to put all that money into the stock market or into bonds, and they're putting a greater portion of their wealth into precious metals. The guy that's worth $5 million that used to keep 2% of his wealth in gold, is now putting 10 to 15% of his wealth in gold. Well, when a lot of those people do that, it starts to pull gold out of the market. That drives the So all of these things are doing that. China has not had the impact of the recession that the rest of the world has. They're still growing and blowing. They're actually bringing in pricing controls right now to control inflation. That's bad news for the global market. Can't get into that today, but it's going to drive some prices down of stocks and investments around the world. Um, but... China has not had this problem. Now there's you know 1.8 billion of these people, and a lot of them are moving from rural poor to middle class city life. One of their big status, India, the same thing. They've been a little bit more hit by the recession than, than China has, but they still are doing pretty well, and they have the same effect going on. You know, one of the biggest status symbols for both of those people, the Indian and the Chinaman that move into the middle class, is having a gold ring, a gold chain, what have you. So they're putting a tremendous demand on gold for jewelry. That we're not seeing, like, people are not buying jewelry in the United States right now the way that they were during the, the, the good times, so to speak, but the couple billion people over there are. All of these things are forcing gold upward. Lack of confidence in the dollar. Lied, lied deflation that's actually minor inflation. Uh, expected high inflation in the future, buying in the future value. Jewelry demand and personal investment demand in, in, in China and India. The Chinese government buying lots of gold. All of these things are, are having that effect. So there you go. Great question. One that makes you go, hmm. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Mark in Arizona. I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on using hardtack as a survival tool or a prepping tool. I've been kind of messing around with it myself and wanted to get your thoughts. Do you have a favorite recipe? I don't know. Thanks. Something I'll probably include in that show I'm going to do on making your own preps. It's a great one. It was... Uh, Really popular during the Civil War by both the North and the South. I think it was more the South than the North, but uh, that became a ration because it was storable, transportable, and a good nutrient value. Here's the thing. You can make hardtack out of whole wheat flour. You can make it out of white flour. Make it out of whole wheat flour. It has very little nutritional value otherwise. 
So it's a great tool for that as long as you're using whole wheat flour. James Talmud Stevens, who wrote the book Making the Best of Basics, is the first that I ever read this about ants. And uh, I've never been able to verify it's true. And I guess I should just go out and find an ant pile and, and test this myself and see if it happens. But according to James Stevens, if you put a little pile of uh, flour near an ant bed, white flour, and you put a little power, p pile of whole wheat flour, and you go back a few days later, you will see the ants have absolutely devoured and taken away the wheat flour, and they just ignore the white flour. They see no value and no use in it. Um, which I find remarkably interesting. Because I know they'll take white bread, so maybe there's because there's other stuff in there and there's sugars, I don't know. But uh, according to him, that's the case. In any event, we know that there's a huge value to whole wheat as far as nutrition. Um, a little bit of fat, definitely some protein, minerals, vitamins, and calories. And with white flour, we pretty much are left with calories and carbohydrates. And... Um, I think we're much better off with a whole wheat version of hardtack. So there you go on that one. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Elias Wolf from the forum. I have a response to something that you talked about earlier, and I am trying to winter over some of my pepper plants. I live in southwest Washington, and I have a very nice jalapeno that I brought inside for the winter after our last frost here. Um, I brought it inside, and it was producing just fine. It still has some peppers on it. But some of the smaller ones have turned red, and obviously jalapenos are green. So I was wondering if you knew why some of my jalapeno peppers are turning red. I bought it from a store um, as a seedling and brought it in, and yeah, it's produced fine. They've, they are jalapenos, but they're now red. Also, you have mentioned that you haven't read Atlas Shrugged, and shame on you. So you mentioned you wanted the audiobook version of it. I have that, and I would be more than happy to send you a copy of the audiobook version, and I don't think it would violate any copyright since I meant to said I purchased it from Audio, Audible, and uh, yeah, um, have a nice day, Jack. Bye. Actually, what you're seeing is completely normal. Uh, jalapenos will turn red, and in fact, that's my favorite way to eat them. I like to get them nice and big and red. Uh, when a jalapeno gets red, its sweetness level comes up, and it actually tends to get a little less hot. They're one of the few hot peppers that do that. I found most of most hot peppers, if they turn their whatever their final color is, and a lot of times that is red, um, they seem to get hotter. Where a jalapeno seems to to, to back off the Scoville units a little bit. Um, I love red jalapenos for doing my stuff with a little bit of cheese and wrap with bacon and cook on the grill. Uh, a lot more flavor to me than a green jalapeno. The reason you've probably never seen it before is you're in a relatively cool climate and it takes warm temperatures to get that pepper to go to red. You're also probably seeing the peppers, the small ones do it because um, the plant is going somewhat dormant. You can winter them over but they won't produce real heavily for you in the lower light period of time. So It's accelerating the maturity of its fruit uh, because of a stress factor, in this case, reduced sunlight. What you'll want to do is you'll want to put that pepper outside every chance you get where temperatures are in the high 30s or above with direct sunlight. And give it as much outside time as you can to get it to do its best through the winter. But absolutely, you got to be on the ball if you let it in freezing temperatures or even get some frost on it for just a second, it will kill that plant dead. So look for lower 40s and, and only in that instance put it outside, be ready to bring it back in, and you'll do better with your winter over project. It may look kind of sickly toward the end of the winter. It may get, it may lose leaves. It may drop leaves. It, you might even end up pruning it back a little bit by the time you're ready to put it back out permanently. But when you put it out in the spring, it will go gangbusters for you. Now, if you're keeping it in a container, you're not going to pull it out and plant it back in the ground or something like that. You're going to want to give it a good boost of fertilizer because it's used that up uh, throughout the winter uh, when you put it out there in spring and just leave it out there once you're past your danger of frost. But red jalapenos are good, man, and uh, nothing to worry about. That's just how it is. Some of them will actually times, I get a lot of them that turn kind of a purple color. 
Uh, I get some that turn almost a chocolate-looking color. That's pretty cool. Eventually, though, all of them, if you leave them on there long enough, tend to turn red for you. The hotter the temperature, the quicker it'll turn, and the more uh, they're exposed to things like ethylene, which they'll produce themselves, and you put them inside, they get a greater exposure to ethylene gas. Uh, that'll also happen to turn them red. So there you go. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack, this is uh, Bobo on the forum. Hey, I just wanted to let you know I uh, needed to get a mortgage recently from uh, Wells Fargo. And uh, initially, uh, when we were doing the pre-approval, uh, they had uh, they couldn't pull up my credit history. And they initially told me I could get a 3.25% interest on a uh, 15-year mortgage for 20% down. And I said, well, how does that rate change? Because you can't pull my credit history, and you have to treat me as somebody with no credit. And they said, it's the same, same one, 3.25. So just goes to show you that you can get a mortgage even if you have no credit history, and you can get a pretty good rate as long as you're willing to put 20% down and a 15-year mortgage. Thanks for the show. Bye. Well, um, in the famous words, it really does happen. Uh, Jack's not crazy. You can get a mortgage without a great credit rating. What you need is money and income. And if you don't have money and income, you're probably not ready to buy a house. I want to relate something to you. We've watched a show last night, a couple episodes of it. I don't remember what it was called now, but it was on a new network that's on cable, or the Dish Network called We, I think is the name of the network. Not We Like the the Game, but We Like You and I, the, 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 the pronoun, W-E. I think it's called Downsized. And it's about this family. It's one of these reality shows uh, where the guy was riding the construction boom and doing about a million and a half dollars worth of business a few years ago. And these people were going out and they were spending like fifteen to $18,000 a month on going out to eat and luxury items and stuff like that. And now they're in kind of a townhome that they're renting, and the kids are all whining and complaining. And the lady, you know, makes about thirty grand a year as a school teacher, and the guy's doing about twenty thousand dollars a year in business, basically working as like a. He's still got his business, but he's basically acting like a handyman now. And they went to this financial advisor, and I thought all his advice was great until he was trying to tell them why it's worth making the sacrifice. He said, "Look." Two to three years from now, you guys are going to be back on your feet, and you know your best option to get back into a home is going to be a 3% down FHA mortgage. And you're going to be able to do that on this plan that I've put together for you. So you're taking a family that doesn't know how to live within their means, and you're telling them to go back into buying a house they can't afford in a few years with only 3% down. Because if they're only doing it with 3% down, they, they probably can't afford it. And I mean, that's just something we need to think about with this whole concept of buying a house with a dollar down. You know, a dollar down, a dollar a month, you'll never have to pay. There's a reason we put that in the song. And even the 3% down. And and I'm going to be honest with you. My first house, we bought FHA, I bought 3% down. I'm not even saying you shouldn't do it. I'm saying you just barely really think about it. You better really think about it before you do it because, you know, you may not be really able to, to take care of a house if you can't save up 10 or 20%. But if you do, I keep saying this, if you if you take the time, if you'll rent below your means, if you'll live uh, a, with a little bit less for a little while and really stockpile some money, and you show up at a bank and you say, I've got $20,000 in cash, and I want to buy a house for about $120,000, that's not quite a 20% down, but they're going to work with you. And then they might even say, you know what, not yet, you're going to need another three or $4,000. But you can go out and save up another three or four thousand dollars, come back and try to do it again. But the concept of I need a credit card so that one day I can get a mortgage, that myth is busted stone cold right there in front of a listener. And with that, it's Friday. I uh, hope this was a good show for you guys. I'm a little bit off today, man. I don't know what it was what it was. I felt tongue tied at some points today, but I guess everybody has an off day. Hopefully I pulled off a good show for you overall. With that, this has been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Yeah. 